This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Historic Souvenirs presents a cyclist's intrepid journeys. Adapted from his book Pedal Power, Roy Sinclair and his partner Harlico from Japan discover the way north through Scotland to John O'Groats and the memorial to a cyclist who truly dedicated his life to doing good along the way. Sleepless nights by firelight, the stranger in this town, heard by talking long and singing songs, I have laid my loneliness down. So long descend with peaceful friends, there is no richer Sudden violence spills Scott blood upon melting snowdrifts of Glencoe in 1692. Clan Campbell massacred 38 of their hosts, Clan MacDonald, who hesitate to swear allegiance to King William III of England and Scotland. But there's a more insidious alienation of the Scots to come. As the clan structure tumbles, traditional lands end up being gradually sold off reducing clansmen to the status of tenants on their own land, beholden to absent landlords. Such alienation again inflicts misery on the innocent. On cycling to the scene of the Glencoe Massacre, in a valley almost uninhabited since, we descend through dripping forest to Glencoe Village. From here, many launch expeditions into Scotland's mountains. These glacial valleys, bounded by steep sides, scoured half a mile wide from mountains towering 3,000 feet or more above, are typical of the highlands. We pause at Fort William, Britain's first community to harness hydroelectric power as its sole source of energy, satisfying the entire demand of 5,000 citizens. Local roads are narrow, cluttered with trucks. Some in convoy are a menace to cyclists. Predicted rain falls. We are tired from yesterday's effort and irritable. What permits petrol stations, gaudily lit frontage, eyesores detracting from old architecture in the vicinity? An exception is McDonald's familiar golden arches, sometimes toned down to fit in with the local aesthetics. Service stations are another matter, owned in overseas interests that are powerful, international. No, not them, never. A lighter touch is the humour conveyed by a window sign at the Spud Stop Cafe. Life expectancy would grow by leaps and bounds if green vegetables smelled as good as bacon. Wearing my wet weather gear is making me sweat. So uncomfortable that when we spot a bicycle shop, we declare the day's biking's over before lunch. The staff at a local information centre book us into Elmer View Bed and Breakfast so we can be assured of a place to lay down our heads if we go out on the town. 
observant as always, Harlequin spots at a bookshop the title The Sinclairs, The Origins of the Clan and Their Place in Scotland's History. My father is descended from Dewar Scots who migrate to Bluff, about as dour a town as one could find in New Zealand at the time. Among our family, any curious questions about the Sinclairs are typically stifled with a grunt. A pity, because according to this little gem of a book, the Sinclairs have much to celebrate, taking leading parts in Scotland's turbulent past, likely derived from a French castle of St. Clair Ept. Their name, Sinclair, is one of the oldest in Europe. Nine Sinclairs fight with distinction beside William the Conqueror at the Battle of Hastings in 1066, which leads to Norman rule in England. Centuries later, a Sir Henry Sinclair fights for Scotland's freedom at the Battle of Bannockburn. A grandson, through marriage to Isabella, Countess of Orkney, lays the way for Clan Sinclair to settle in the Northern Territories. In 1455, an earldom of Caithness is created, with King James II conferring upon William Sinclair the title Earl of Orkney. By then, Sir William Sinclair builds the magnificently carved Roslyn Chapel south of Edinburgh so as to conceal secrets of the Templars or even the Holy Grail. The chapel features in the film The Da Vinci Code. with the bald head leaning out of the loco. It's our friendly host at our lodgings, Mr. Timbrell. He indicates a photo showing his younger self on a loco taken near Fort William. He's been busy in the kitchen since early, accustomed to rise early from a 50-year career on railways. He knows we're planning to cycle halfway across Scotland to Loch Ness. Figures will need the sustenance only black pudding brings. Needless to say, when Harlequin burps, declaring, Roy, son, I'm so full, she has already polished off all her share. It's a one-man band as Mr. Timbrell busies about in his kitchen, fating us with delicious delicacies and beverages. We chat as we take in an image of the British Rail Black Five-class locomotive hauling its rake of carriages along a lock framed across one wall, is an example of the nostalgia Britain nurtures for an age of industrial might, whereas his lounge at Almaview overlooks a passive scene of town and sea. Above towers Britain's highest mountain, Ben Nevis, burying its head in cloud. Feeling reinforced by his kindness, we bid Mr. Timbrell goodbye to head off to the Great Caledonian Canal.
built in the early 1800s to the design of the son of a Scotch shepherd, connecting existing waterways, the canal provides a shipping lane across Scotland from the Irish Sea to the North Sea. We detour along the canal path to Fort Augustus. Stone homes rise above the western extremity of Loch Ness, forming a delightful rural town. Here we relax, lunch, and watch changing water levels raise or lower small craft through an array of canal gates, like a mini Panama Canal. When we resume our ride, it's beside the long Loch Ness. From the back of our bikes comes the sound of pannier bags now tinkling agreeably with the goods we buy as provisions to sustain us at the Loch Ness YHA. Its staff are somewhat eccentric, yet some may say the same of us. As in most youth hostels of Britain, men and women are strictly, frustratingly separated. For years the Brits contemplate adopting the YHA system of Europe, where men and women have mixed rooms or dormitories. It's no surprise to hear discussion as to whether a Loch Ness monster actually exists beyond legend. It dates back to the apparition of 565 AD when St. Columba, the Christian missionary to King Brood of the Picts, drove away a certain water monster. Other sightings of the Jurassic-style monster continue down the ages, along with some proven pranks, such as a notorious surgeon's photo purporting to show the beast, but actively contrived using a model.
after cycling past the ruins of Urquhart Castle, we come upon a village thriving on the Loch Ness Monster theory, the Loch Ness Monster Booking Office, Loch Ness Monster Hotel, Information Centre, Street, to which I mutter to myself, bollocks, yet we're reminded by a notice in the Loch Ness YHA. Welcome to Loch Ness, warning. It has yet to be proved there isn't a monster in this lock. Just in case, we stay well out of the water. Personally, I think the monster exists only as a figment of folklore that's difficult to discredit, because Loch Ness is so long and so deep, being Britain's largest body of fresh water. Our day ends on Scotland's barren east coast commanding a view of the North Sea oil rigs. We should have economized by camping, but instead cycle into the town of Tane at its zenith for summer celebration. Kilted highland pipers tune up outside a pub. We find a bed and breakfast to stay the night, having been on the road 28 days and now 1,808 kilometers from where we began at Land's End. It comforts us to know we're now close to our objective, John O'Groats. In recent history, however, what happened near here, hundreds of years ago, is a disgrace to those who had power over others' lives. Next day, no sooner do we hit the highway, we pass into the royal borough of Dornoch, infamous for executing witches the last in boiling tar in 1772. Along the coast is the small fishing port of Golsby. Its hilltop statue exhibits the likeness of George Granville Leverson Gower, Duke of Sutherland. It's he who bears responsibility for the Highland clearances. In one day, as many as 2,000 Highlanders are forced out, their homes burn, leaving no way back, bereft, Powerless against the aristocracy, they struggle to find new shelter. Some make it to the Americas, Australia, and New Zealand. Treated callously, the crofter's way of life collapses. In place of 15,000 former crofters, growing gardens, raising their own stock, the aristocrats farm 200,000 sheep for profit on the insatiable wool markets. Might the statue to the architect of Highland Improvements suffer the same fate as Saddam Hussein's statue in Baghdad? After all, aren't we still bullied by money? Its power tosses out loyal workers still, leaving the illiterate, the poor to fend for themselves, searching for the dignity of work, health and safety. As we pass the huge Dunrobin Castle, once the Sutherland strongland securing their lands, I wonder what price the crofters of the past paid to support prosperity of the privileged and powerful. Son of the Lord.
My troublesome tooth has stayed dormant till a sudden lurch in pain level. It's bound to make the afternoon miserable. It sends me reminders till finally it's dealt with in London by a high-speed drill wielded by an expensive overseas-born dentist to end my ordeal. Meanwhile, we conquer hairpin bends up and down along the coast to stay at Inver Caravan Park on the northern outskirts of Dunbeath. I negotiate the camp fee with a man working on the roof of a new building, only to have his wife countermand his prices with cheaper charges in appreciation of our coming to Britain to peddle from end to end. She always does that for end-to-enders, says her husband. It's only three minutes' ride to the local pub, where most of the patrons are, like me, Sinclair's. It's been a tough day, what with a tooth playing up, headwinds and steep climbs. Later, crawling into our tent, we hear the first patter of rain on the tent fly. So why's Harleco grinning, her arm deep inside the day pack? Finally, finding what they seek, her fingers extract a small bottle of Scotch whisky. We'll sleep well tonight, not far to go now. Next morning, there's no doubt. I'm inwardly pleased to be near accomplishing our mission. We're in the region called Caithness, home of Clan Sinclair. On heading north, we see the beauty of a land of gullies, sparse coastal settlement, hairy highland cattle fussing over young calves. Noon finds us in the large town of Wick, a herring fisheries centre. We cash travellers' checks to lunch at a pub, patronised by a couple of blokes clad in leather tunics compatible with the Harley Davidsons parked outside. We watch their ungainly walk to mount their gleaming machines. Their boots click on pedal starters. Pistons sputter momentarily before bursting into life, shattering the peace of the town square. It's both intrusive and impressive as they spread their way like piston-engine war aviators taxiing for takeoff. Suddenly, they're gone. Our own exit after lunch is more sedate. The landscape alters. Beyond the town, no trees grow. The land is flat, its grey ground broken occasionally by an isolated dwelling. The sky is huge. The feeling of freedom immense. I'm a stranger here. I know no one, even if my ancestors once trod this coast. And what of Halako? I'm not expecting she'll have any affinity for the county of Caithness or the Orkney Islands visible offshore. I'm mistaken. Neglecting to recollect our experience of cycling together to extremities of her homeland, where we pedalled to an isolated cape on Hokkaido, from which we could just make out across the strait separating Japan and Russia, Sakhalin Island. Now it's Scotland's turn. We've arrived at the northernmost point of mainland Britain, John O'Groats. If we thought to spend quiet time of reflection here, seeing an identical pluck as at Land's End to the memory of the long-distance cyclist Derek Hawkins... We are mistaken. 
It's a roar of approaching Harley Davidsons. Yes, the lads from the cafe. They stop, stare in utter disbelief. How had we made Johnny Groths before they did, and by a comfortable margin? They introduce themselves as Ray and John from Oxford, England. They don't seem so menacing now. Often the English are backward about coming forward until they've been introduced, if that makes sense. We are united in our sense of achievement, dismayed only not to share it with a man whose memory has pursued us on the ride ever since Harlico had me posed by the pluck at the Cornwall end of the long ride, not knowing at the time its significance. Finally, we read of the tragedy that ends cycling for one of its great advocates, Derek Hawkins. He had ridden end to end a dozen times raising thousands of pounds for his local schools, whereas Harlico and I take thirty days to do the same distance, Derek had decided on his ill-fated last ride to complete the well-worn route in a six-day personal challenge. Like me, Derek was a photographer, and like me, he came to serious cycling in his fifties just two hours after leaving land's end on this his final ride he lies critically injured on a cornwall highway the victim of a van whose driver lost control when a folder slips off a seat in the van the driver instinctively tries to grab it it cost derrick his life a local newspaper the stockport express states in its report of the coroner's court many lessons can be learned from this very sad series of events. Even on the straightest stretch of road, it's still imperative drivers have regard to what they're doing. A momentary lapse of attention can have catastrophic results, even if not intended. The errant van driver faces a charge of driving without due care and attention. He had seen the cyclist wearing a reflective jacket, but loses control of his van trying to grab the falling folder. Derek's wife Jacqueline says she always fears for cyclists like Derek, who leave on dangerous rides, sharing busy highways with motor traffic. Nevertheless, she goes along with supporting him because of the good which comes of charity rides, raising funds for good causes. Naming this coast by a foreign name comes from an extraordinary family story of discontented sons of a 15th century Dutchman, Jan de Groot. There are seven sons. They quarrel over precedence. The business de Groot founded running a ferry over the strait between the British mainland and Orkney Islands. The main landfall takes Jan's name, modifies the spelling, so becoming John of Groot's. Even the price of a passage, fourpence, to cross by ferry, takes on its own identity, becoming known as a groat. To solve the problem of precedence among many sons, Jan de Groot builds his house to recognize each and every one of them. 
It's octagonal, with eight entrances. Each son enters by a different door to sit at the same octagonal table, a strange home that stood on the point now named after their father, John of Groats. We've made it. This program, Historic Souvenirs, is broadcast on Free FM 89.0. Proudly supported by New Zealand on air. Same station, same time next week for another of the stories of Harlequin and Roy Sinclair as they make their way to the top of Britain. Use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.